from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. A lot of people know me. They never know that I was uh, in a concentration camp. Why? Because I built my life differently. I built my life on the present, on the future. From Louisville Public Media, this is Five Things, the show that tells a life story through the objects we treasure. I'm Tara Anderson. Each episode features a guest who shares five physical objects with us, things that have some significance in their life that represent important people or turning points. Today, we're starting our new season with a truly remarkable story from Ezio Rosenman. I was connected to him through some friends who told me he might be a good guest, and they were absolutely right. We recorded this conversation last spring in New York City, and you'll hear that I also had a bit of a spring cold at the time. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you'll know that we usually hear about one object at a time, but this conversation didn't quite go like that. In the end, I didn't mind, and I don't think you will either. My name is Isio Rosenman. I was born in Poland. But since 70 years, I'm living in France. I had, uh, let's say, several (laughs) lives. That's a difficulty. (laughs) The life, a small part of my life in Poland. And uh, uh, during the war, I was in concentration camps. After I came to France, and I'm still living in France, Professionally, let's say, really to say in two words, mm-hmm. I was a f- research physicist during 40 years in France. And uh, I was uh, during 15 years psychoanalyst. I studied also anthropology. Uh, so it's a complex life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sitting here in New York. You're visiting a family this I, I'm week. I'm visiting my son, who, who is a doctor in New York, who is already um, more than 20 years in the United States, and Gabrielle, who is living in France, and my wife, who are married for the three years, taught at literature in Paris University after being uh, 20 years uh, teacher in secondary school, and both, in one word, we are socially and culturally militant. (laughs) (laughs) You smile a lot for someone who calls themselves militant. (laughs) What does that word mean to you? It's a French word that means active. Ah. We are not simply professionally active like everybody, but we are both active politically and culturally. Details will follow. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. So I asked you to choose five objects from your life that have been important or resonant in some way. Yeah. And we'll learn about you through Uh, these objects. First one of these objects is a simple cup, a metallic cup, which was uh, found 
in uh, the ruins of uh, a ghetto in Poland. Uh, let's say this is connected both with my uh, life as a survivor of the Holocaust and both it's related to my Jewish life culturally, former religiously, because now I'm atheist, but my former life is also my life. <laughs> Where were you born? I was born in a small city. At that time, these small cities were called Städtel. Uh, it was a city of uh, about 4,000 people among them. 80% Jews and about 20% uh, Polish Catholic, let's say. And I was born in 35, and it was a period of very strong cultural and social transformation in Poland. It was a period of modernization and also a period of secularization. What was your childhood like? Did you live near a lot of family? Did you go to school? Ah, uh, so now, as I was born in uh, 35, when the Second World War came, I was only four years yeah. old. So I had time. This small city is a place where there was school for aviation, military school for aviation okay. for pilots. So the hour the Second World War broke out, we received during three days bombing, 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 bombing. Uh, when we escaped, the bomb, the fire was on the left side of the road, on the right side, and I was sitting on of the bicycle of my uncle, and we went uh, 20 kilometers farther. So the city was really in the heart of the Second and uh, from the destroyed, but uh, apart destroyed. Yeah. So I was never in the school. Right. I and see. Uh, from that, as in other cities, after maybe two months, the German founded a ghetto where Jews were compelled to live. And after that, uh, a camp, a working camp. In '42, most of the Jews were sent to death camps. Uh, my mother and my sister, we were together in another camp, in a very important city in Poland, Częstochowa. And uh, from that camp, one of my sister and my mother were sent to very deathful uh, camps, Dachau and Bergen-Belsen. And me and my father, uh, we were sent to Buchenwald. When you were in the camp, what was your life like? What was a, a, a normal day? It was day? a very different life. We were lucky because in the camp, for example, when we arrived with my father, we were in the first part of Buchenwald where the people survived maybe three to four weeks mm. and almost all died. My father was an exception. Buchenwald was divided three. The big camp, the quarantine camp, 
and the camp for the children and f uh, a block for French people. And there were several commanders working outside the camp. Okay. Uh, for example, my father at time was going with a commander to Weimar. Weimar was the old capital of Germany, mm -hmm. as there were a lot of bombardment, so a lot of houses were destroyed, so the inmates uh, were taken to rebuild the houses. Ah, I didn't know that people were taken out of the camps to work. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. So we're, but we, the children block, were very happy owing to this administration of the political, we had not to work. Mm. Otherwise, we could not uh, survive. Yeah. So uh, all this we arrived in uh, mid-January and uh, uh, the liberation was in uh, the 11th of uh, April. So we, we were really two to three months. Yeah. That winter was a very, very, very cold winter mm. with uh, all the temperatures minus Celsius, a lot minus 10, minus 15, mm. could be minus 20. So people, as they didn't receive enough heat, they died very yeah. easily. Yeah. Did you have enough food? Uh, Did you, no, the children? No, nobody had enough. No. That doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, nobody, because they calculated the food in order that the, the people just survive, but no more. Yeah. That uh, was the basic uh, law of the concentration camp. Yeah. I was walking, I have told this story because it's so paradoxical. Yeah. I was walking in the camp and an SS arrested me and said to me, come with me. Did you know why? No. No. Where did he take me? He took me to the brothel. brothel. It was a brothel in Buchenwald for yeah. the SS, yeah. where there were young Jewish girls. And he took me to the brothel and he gave me a very good soup. He gave me uh, also a container to bring the soup home, let's say. Oh. Why do you think he did that? It's the only reason I found that really it, it will seem you curious. I was very beautiful. Really, I'm saying when I look on my picture, I have even a picture I looked like, like an Aryan people, but I was mm. very blonde, very clear, clear blonde, mm -hmm. and I was very beautiful. And he saw a Jew, probably, uh, which didn't correspond to his image of the Jews. And uh, so he took me, and that I have never found another reason for that. Hmm. That's all. Did he ever help you again? No, I didn't know. I, n I never met him because generally, the SS was a, were really afraid to go in the camp because they are afraid of uh, infections. Oh, there I were see. a lot of uh, typhoid uh, and other. Sure. My dad died from typhoid. Uh -huh. uh, so you had uh, tuberculosis, a lot of things. So 
uh, when uh, the underground had to hide something, what did they do? They put him in the hospital. There were a small infirmary. Mm-hmm. They took him to the infirmary where never SS came in because they were, they, uh, they were, were afraid. afraid in, uh, if one says there is typhoid, he doesn't go yeah. there. It's uh, a word difficult to imagine. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. You lived more in 10 years, in your first 10 years, than many people ever experience. That's right. The difference is that I haven't chosen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get to France? One of uh, the American soldier, uh, how do you call the religious uh, officer? A chaplain? Yeah, a mm-hmm. chaplain. Was a Jewish chaplain. And uh, he was told that some Jews, uh, young Jews, uh, remained alive. Mm-hmm. He contacted the Red Cross, the International Red Cross, who contacted a French Jewish organization which is called OZE, that means an organization for children, and they contacted the French government, uh, De Gaulle, and after uh, negotiating, we were not returning to our country because uh, among us were Poland, majority was Polish Jews, Romanian, Hungarian, and Czechs. Mm. That was main. And France alone was not in a good situation. France was destroyed. Nevertheless, uh, we received the authorization to come to France, and there was a transport, and we were received by the Jewish organization in a French hospital for, for young people. Mm-hmm. We remained there. After that, we were dispatched in several kinder homes because a lot of uh, young Jews survived. They were hidden in French uh, families. Mm-hmm. We were in uh, kinder homes uh, of an age, let's say. And uh, there I remained eight years then. Eight years. Because at the beginning I knew my father died, I knew, he died in Buchenwald, but I didn't know anything about my sister and my mother. Right. After a few months I knew that my, sis- my sisters and my mothers uh, survived, but then they were in Germany. Mm. So after three years, with the help of the OZE and so on, I was successful to bring them to France. But I was uh, still very young. After, uh, at the end of the war, I was 10. And uh, when my mother, my sister came, I was 13. So I remained in in this orphanage uh, till 18. Mm -hmm. 
Did you ever wonder why you survived? I, I'll tell you. It's totally the improbable thing. Okay. Totally there is no particular reason. I told you one of the reasons probably was uh, that as I was beautiful, people helped me easily. I had a good, uh, generally good relation with the people. Yeah. Uh, so I found even in this block where I was one of the three youngest people, uh, elder inmates helped me and that occurred, but I could also not be well for another capo and he could hit me. There's no reason. It's uh, one must understand that the camps are totally irrational, both rational, very organized by our laws, but these laws can change from one moment to the other. Mm. So there is no real reason except that to survive you needed, you needed help from other people. Sometimes people who have survived a trauma maybe feel guilty or wonder what their purpose in life is supposed to be. You know, why Why did I get another chance? Did you think about that? No. It's a difference, maybe, was that I made a personal psychoanalysis of 10 years. <laughs> it, makes, it makes really a difference. Yeah. Uh, as I say often, that happened to me, but my life, a lot of people know me, they never know that I was uh, in a concentration camp. Why? Because I build my life differently. I build my life on the present, on the future. And uh, as I told you, I had uh, 10 years of psychoanalysis behind me. And that really helps you to build another life. Let's go on to your second item, if you're yeah. okay with that. Yeah. It can be a lamp. Mm-hmm. It can be any other electrical uh, object because my first professional formation was electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And then I was during 40 years physicist. After leaving the orphanage, I went to university, and the uh, orphanages are generally here and in any other place, isolated yeah. places. Isolated culturally and isolated humanly. And uh, so when you live in a normal situation, you live with your parents, you live with your friends. When you live in an orphanage, you have to imagine your own future. That's not easy thing. No. I knew one uh, people who was in the university and has made an engineering school, maybe five, six years older than mm-hmm. me. So the only thing I thought, when I will be older, 
I will make the same engineering mm-hmm. school as this guy. Uh-huh. And it was an electricity engineering mm-hmm. school, a very, very one of the, the best in this field. And when I was ending this school, the boy was now an adult, mm. was doing a, a PhD thesis in physics in a very, very good place, the best in France, which is called École Normale Supérieure. His name was Félix, Félix Diamant. Mm-hmm. It's good to, to, to say the names yes. of the people. Really. When you say the name of a people, he survives. Yeah. My idea was... I will do the same PhD. <laughs> follow, follow Felix. Yeah, for really, because I didn't know any other uh, high schools. On that. Yeah. So I uh, make, made my life as a physicist there for 35 years, 40 years. And what was your particular area of interest or area in of physics, research? But was, in physics, that was really a part. Mm-hmm. Every 10 years, I changed. Mm. I worked first, uh, 10 years was in semiconductor fields, also magnetism in semiconductors. I used neutron uh, scattering uh, for studies that. After that, I studied high temperature superconductivity mm-hmm. and uh, after that I started crystallization problems in uh, in proteins. I was Different lucky years. because it was very high level intellectually and culturally, not only in physics but in other fields. So I was lucky I participated in now we are the 50 years commemorating the 68 movement in France. Yes. I was very active in this movement uh, during the, that time, but it was not enough for me. Mm. <laughs> during that time, I started other studies in university, but uh, I was very lucky in my life as a physics research fellow. The third object I have chosen is uh, a divan, because I was a psychoanalyst. I started my uh, analysis, but I started also my life as a physicist, the same time I went to university to study sociology. After that, to study anthropology. And uh, from anthropology to psychoanalysis, the way is not very far. (laughs) No, really, I think, Mm -hmm. because both what you are interested in is the life of the other, of the other people. Yeah the inner life, the outer life, uh, so, I'd say, naturally, I was, uh, I oriented myself, but partly because I, I was, uh, as I say, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, <laughs> mainly I was, uh, principally, I was a physicist. It seems like you're interested in so many things. That's, uh, I'll tell you, I'm convinced that we have only one life. 
So what you don't do in your present life, you will never do that. If you want to have an active and an interesting life, you must do it here and now. My wife. How first. did you meet? Ah, how we met. Yeah. It's very, very also improbable. <laughs> first time we met, I didn't see her. We were with a friend of mine who was a friend of my wife, mm-hmm. but we didn't know. There were 15 people sitting, but I, I didn't see her. <laughs> and he didn't see me. Oh. But... Uh, half a year later, but maybe nine, I went to Jerusalem for two weeks uh, because I had family uh, in Israel. My uncle's uncle, who was a revolutionary, who was in Gulag 10 years, and he survived. And after the war, it's another uh, novel history <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to write. And a friend of mine, a French friend, said, I have a friend of mine, you must meet her. She's doing giving a party in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, ah. and the young uh, student who gave a party was uh, Annie, a very, very, very beautiful woman, and a very, very interesting woman. And when I speak about my wife, I say my lover, and we are married. Uh, 43 years ago, and we are happy 43 years. And uh, she's very active, I'm very active, and we both together (laughs) were very active. uh. When you talk about your wife, your face looks different than any other thing you've talked about. Uh, That's right, (laughs) (laughs) that's right. If you're okay, are you, are you yeah, getting tired? Yeah, I'm okay. okay. I, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll tell you what my mother was telling me in Yiddish, but I'll say it in English. Ijo, you know, when talking would be a profession, you would go run in gold. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that for me in Yiddish? Wenn <laughs> gold. So Yiddish was the language you grew up speaking? That's a curious thing. You know, uh, when I uh, told you that Poland was, uh, at the, when I was born, a society, and particularly the Jewish society, in a transformation, very fast transformation. So our parents didn't speak to us in Yiddish. They spoke to us in Polish because they wanted that we'll be good Polish citizens. Yes. But between them, they spoke Yiddish. And how I learned Yiddish was, even my mother was speaking to me in Polish, the songs she was singing were in Yiddish. Mm. That was my first school of Yiddish. My second school of Yiddish was in concentration camps. 
because between Hungarian Jews, Polish Jews, Romanian Jews, Czechoslovakian Jews, the common language was Yiddish. Yiddish. Yeah. So I, I learned German in Yiddish in the concentration mm. camp, and I have a particular pleasure. I have not occasions, uh, except when my mother was living here. I spoke with her the first time Yiddish, and she spoke French, but generally we spoke more emotionally. And now I have a friend who is a translator. When we speak, we begin by speaking Yiddish uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. I speak also and write and read Hebrew. And I have a very, you know, for languages, you should have a, an emotional relation to language. Yeah. And to Hebrew, I have really a very strong emotional relation because I learned Hebrew when I was uh, 11 by uh, a boy, I say a boy, a very young adult, 20, who was an American Jew who came to France to take care of the children mm. like me and who became one of the most important Israeli poets, Carmi Cherny, who translated Shakespeare and so on, and who wrote beautiful poems. And the first poem book of a poem he wrote, the title was There Are No Black Flowers. And this uh, book was on the children of Holocaust. And I've learned 70 years later, as a boy who was a model, was me <laughs> in the book. So what did you think about that? I was really moved. Uh, that's, wow. That's life. Buchenwald? Yeah. I was back in 1989, mm -hmm. just uh, one year before the communism crash. Yeah. I, we went with some friends, because in Buchenwald every 10 years there is a huge meeting of the survivors. Mm. How was it? It was very moving, you know, after 50 years, you never find the place you were for two reasons. Because the place has changed yeah. and you has changed. So you never find. Yeah. But I find a thing really which was moving. How do you call the used water goes underground? Ah, uh, the, the sewer? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the sewer. I saw that it was a scale going down, mm. and uh, I, I went down and I found a plate, a very old plate of aluminium. Mm. But going out from the camp, I, I took a book 
uh, there's always a documentation center where they sell books on, yes. on camp. Uh-huh. And what I've read then uh, was that during the last uh, three weeks, the German had uh, found that something is preparing, that there is an underground, and they had the name of the people who was the, the chief of the political underground. Uh, so they were began to uh, looking after him, mm-hmm. to searching that place. And the underground hid mm-hmm. these people under, and they brought him to eat. And what I have found, this metallic plate. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. It's hard to... To say, yeah, was a plate in the, in which they gave him some eat, and I found this plate, and he asked me if it was moving. Yeah, it's what terribly moving. Yes. I'm interested in when you became an atheist. Uh, some people yeah. might say you lost your religion. Yeah. I don't know if you would put it that way. Not at all. Was it a gradual change I, of mind or yeah. did something happen? It happened maybe 50 years ago mm-hmm. by thinking on shore. Till that time I lived, but I didn't think really much because... You know, during 10 or 15 years, most of people, the most important thing was for them to survive and to build their, their life. Mm-hmm. People were interested to live, to build their life, to study. Uh, and so, so I began to think. And I, when I was religious, I was very religious. But after thinking, I become really not religious. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people who who are religious without knowing. Uh, they say, well, maybe somebody in the, in the heaven, and maybe... I never felt that. Uh, those who became religious when they became older, everybody fears dying. Most of people become religious yeah. for fear of dying yes. and for love to survive. I don't think... I think we disappear. So you never felt a presence of God in your life? No. no. Really, if he, he had been present, how really could he live what we see? When I was a child, yes. But as an adult, uh, after uh, thinking about all these things which happen, cannot be. Uh, yeah. Or he is God and he couldn't live. Or is not got a powerful God, but uh, life is in our hands. I think so.
you've done so many different things in your life, followed your interests. <laughs> You're 83 years old now. What are you going to do next? At least I'm 83. I hope that I will live 200. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you still have lots of time. Uh, I, I have not enough. I'm writing novels, yeah. short novels. Uh, I'm involved, very uh, involved in... Uh, an association, a Jewish association, a pro-Israeli, pro-peace. You have to look what you can do in present from this past heritage, and this important. The concept of tikkun olam, you know it? I do know it. Yeah, Yeah. that's beautiful. That shows that you have to engage yourself in this world uh, to try to transform it. To explain, it means to heal the world, right? Yeah, exactly. It's to heal. You are, if you look around, you, you people are suffering from a lot of uh, racism, a lot of poverty, a lot of things. And I think that Tikkun Olam is a beautiful concept for all of us, for you, for me. Yeah. So you have a lot to think to do. Well, we've kind of gotten off track with the objects. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't care. I don't okay. care. I, I just, I've enjoyed talking with you so much. I mean, it was really a big pleasure, and uh, I hope we'll remain in contact. I hope so, too. Yeah, Thank really. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Izio Rosenman for being my guest today. Special thanks to David Rosenman and Galit Sakaju. Today's show was produced, edited, and mixed by me with editing oversight from Erica Peterson. Our theme music is by Alex Wright. You can get more information on our show at wfpl.org and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. 